Thank you, brother. Let's come back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if we may. And I uh, hope if you're able to make it out for the, uh, the agape meal on Wednesday night. That's what they called it in 1 Corinthians 11. That's what they're referring to. Right before the Lord's Supper, they celebrated an agape meal. And I like that. Pot blessed. I'm going to carry that forward. Not pot luck. Pot blessed. Well, we'll come back now. We're looking at these distinctions in, in the uh, epistle of 1 Corinthians. And we saw this morning in the first nine verses, I trust it was clear to us that that there's an enormous privilege that, that has happened for us who know the Lord Jesus. We've been called into the fellowship of God's Son. And in doing so, we've been set apart for God. Actually, he will go so far as to say in chapter 6, you are my possession now. I bought you. I paid a big price for you. This is in chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20, right? He, the, the blood of His Son paid for you. And so, we are His possession. And that element of possession really is in that, the, uh, the, of, the church of God. It's a, it could vary, the word of could be a genitive of possession, uh, as we indicate there in verse 2. And so now we want to move down to verse 10. One thing I wanted to point out in verse 9, you notice the compound name of our Lord there at the end of verse 9. And as I mentioned before, our Lord's referred to nine times by name, a couple of times by pronoun in addition to that, but nine times by name in these first nine verses. That's a subtle hint. The Holy Spirit saying, Look, you Corinthians, a lot of your problems would go away if He would be central, if Christ would be central, a lot of the dissensions and problems would go away. That's what He's telling the Corinthians, and it's a message we, we still need to hear. But notice He says, the fellowship of and, and four descriptors of our Lord Jesus, His Son. Now these descriptors all tell us something different about Him. He's not just using words repetitively. The fellowship of His Son, His Son speaks of Everything He is as God, right? He's the Son of God. And so His regal dignity, His deity, we've been called... And, and I say that because we, we get, forget. We sometimes get busy with life and we forget who we are. Our identity, right? We're part of this partnership. Koinonia means fellowship, means a partnership with the Son of God. That's what He's called you to in me. I mean, I, I think I can meditate on that for a long time and still not get to the depths of that. But then not only that, Jesus. And Jesus is His name, His name He was given in His incarnation, right? Right? And the name mean, Yeshua means Yahweh saves, right? So that's His name particularly as our Savior. Jesus died on the cross. He bore our own sins in His own body on the tree. That's Jesus. And, and so the idea of being our personal Savior is linked to that name. And then Christ, Christos, Messiah. 
That's his exalted title and name, isn't it? His humiliation in Jesus, his exaltation in Christ. Those two phases we see in Philippians 2, right? He humbled himself even to the death of the cross, but now God hath highly exalted him. That came out this morning too in the Lord's Supper, didn't it? Uh, Given him a name above every name. That every knee's going to bow. And every tongue's going to confess. Those above, below, in between. And then our Lord. Those of us who know Him as Savior also know that He is our Lord. Now, Lord has the idea that He has authority over us, doesn't He? As Lord, He can ask us to do certain things and we should want to do them, right? If He's our Lord. So the idea from our point, submission, from Him, authority. So just in those four descriptors there at the end of verse 9, but verse 10 links to this. Because now in verse 10, and I would submit verses 10 to 17, deal with Christ as preeminent. Christ as preeminent and... In verse 18 to 25, Christ is God's power and wisdom. And then verses 26 to 31, Christ our complete deliverer. All right? So we're seeing the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is sufficient for us in everything that we need. Now I plead with you, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name... Of our Lord Jesus Christ. What had he just said in verse 9, right? And he comes right back. By that name. Remember, he used it also in verse 2. To those who in every place call on the name. The name. His name speaks of everything he is. His character, his power, his authority, his name. See? He says, Now I plead with you, brethren... By the name of our Lord. You see what he's doing? His, his plea, his urgent appeal, his exhortation, all of that, it's, it's parakaleo, you know, it's the same word, I beseech you. His, his plea is on the basis of the name. Are you called by his name? Then on the basis of his name, he says, I plead with you, what? That you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions, schismata, schisms among you. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Well, that's that's a buildup of several words emphasizing what could we put this in one word? Unity. And unity doesn't mean uniformity. Praise God, that's true. We're not all the same. There's diversity. We were talking about our accents earlier. We have different accents. We have different interests. We have different things that we like and hobbies and so forth. But there is unity. And beloved, this is not automatic Because you remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, again in a 
parakaleo, kind of a command, exhortation, says what? That you strive to maintain what? The unity of the body in the bond of peace. Wait a minute. That unity is in who we are and who Christ is. Why do we have to? We don't, we don't create the unity. That's not what he's saying, right? Either here or in Ephesians 4. God creates the unity. And remember our Lord in his high priestly prayer in John 17, what he kept, Lord, keep them one as we are one in the Godhead, in agreement together. So there will be things within our hearts, the old nature, and within the world system and other things that will get our eyes off of Christ that will work against this unity. And that's why we are urged to strive to maintain it. Now it's interesting. One brother points out that that that, that schism, that rending, that, that problem of division doesn't just occur overnight it's a built it starts with and there are different greek words for it used in the new testament it starts with a discussion do you see why we want to be careful about these discussions and discussion groups we have sometimes because what starts as a discussion then moves into an argument okay so now it's that's a that's a more heightened intensity in it right then that argument moves into a schism. This word, a division. Now you're beginning to stand apart from one another. And that ultimately leads to heresy. What do you talk about? You use that word in chapter 11, see? A, a full departure into a separate sect and, and with an animosity between it and the former, see? You know, it's interesting. Over, over in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 14, listen to what old Solomon tells us here. Great advice. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. You know, when, when you get that little bit of water in, in, in a dam, you know, it starts to creak down through the, you know, a little crack. You can't put it back in, right? <laughs> Once it gets out, you can't get it. And the beginning of strife is like releasing water. This works in husband-wife relationships. This works in children-parent relationships. This works in all human relationships and in the relationship of believers in the assembly. Therefore, since that's true, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Oh, that's how we maintain the unity of the body and the bond of peace. We stop the contention. We use the term, we head it off at the pass, right? We stop it before it balloons into a quarrel. Because when it balloons into a quarrel, the communication breaks down, right? We no longer hear. The other person doesn't hear. And it moves towards schismata. Now, Paul already knew this was happening in Corinth. He planted that church only about six years, four to six years before he wrote this letter. Doesn't take long. 
even when an apostle plants an assembly for problems to come up. So he says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren. Notice the tenderness and how he's, he's dealing with a very hot potato issue here, right? And look at how tender he is. It's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe, Chloe's household. He told who came and gave him the report that there are contentions among you. He said, so I know this is happening. And I want to help you stop them before they lead to these divisions, to this schism. Now I say this, that each of you says, now this is interesting, right? When he says each of you, that tells us this is not just a small group within the, the assembly there in Corinth. Everyone is involved in this already. It's already escalated. That's why Chloe's household sent messengers over there to Paul and told him. And he was in Ephesus, wrote this letter. Some say, I'm of Paul. Well, that sounds real spiritual at first, right? And another one says, well, I'm of Apollos. That's who, that's who I follow. That's my favorite speaker. And then some of them say, well, I'm of Cephas. I mean, they don't even use Peter, his Greek name. They're going to use his Aramaic name. I'm of Cephas. You know, I mean, I am really... He was one of the twelve. Paul wasn't, right? And he was the leader of the twelve. And then some said, I am of Christ. Now, the fact that they were saying, I am of Christ, you say, well, then they're just, they're just saying they're Christians. No, they were... I think the implication is they were saying, I'm of Christ and you're not. I'm the elite group. I'm really a disciple of Christ, and you're not. Because they're saying they're separated off, you see. Now, before we pick up stones to throw at these poor Corinthian brothers and sisters that we're going to be with in eternity, <laughs> before we come to that place, we need to be careful to examine ourselves. Because I hear this all the time among people who should know better. Dropping certain names of certain speakers, certain magazine writers, certain other type of people who are evangelists and have different missions and ministries and so forth. This creeps in very subtly, brethren. The devil knows how to creep in there and cause a division. Now it's interesting, all these are names and what did he start with in verse 10? The name. The name of Jesus Christ. If you keep your eyes on Him and don't exalt men, you'll be protected from this. So Paul says, is Christ divided? Think about that. That's a graphic statement. Are you going to divide up Christ? Now that word divide, Marizzo has the idea, and he'll use it later in the letter this way, of, of apportioned out. In chapter 7, he'll talk about some have been apportioned out with the gift of singleness, right? And so it's an apportioning, uh, just distribution, if you will. And, that, and that's how that word is often used in the New Testament. 
So is Christ only apportioned out to certain of his disciples is, is what he may be asking. It's interesting, though, the intensified form of the word diamorizo is used in Matthew 27 when they remember what they did with our Lord's clothes at the foot of the cross. They rent them. They tore them apart and separated themselves out. I think it's an interesting picture to think about. When someone tries to divide up an assembly or the body of Christ, they are dividing up like those soldiers were just tearing up the garments of Christ. And when I think of it that way, I see the seriousness of that. I don't want to face my Lord Jesus at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, what he talks about in chapter 3, with that on my resume. I don't know about you. You're going to say, well, you know, you were down there serving me, and, and what did you do? You divided up my body. And, and what are you going to say to that, to the person who died for you? So, Paul, I mean, to me, He's guided by the Holy Spirit, of course, but still, this to me, the, the logic behind this, I mean, is Christ divided? Boom, it hits right between the eyes, so to speak, right? It's shocking. Is Christ divided? Is that what you think is the right way to handle the person who died for you? That's the implication. He says, was Paul crucified for you? You see what he's getting back to? Who's the one who died for you on the cross? Did Cephas? Did Apollos? Did Paul? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There's that name again. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Who were you baptized in the name of? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We're very careful to say that when we do a baptism service. Purposely, because our Lord specifically told us that in Matthew 28, didn't He? Well, if you've been baptized, and this idea of baptism has the idea of union and identification as well as the idea of testimony to our conversion. If you've been baptized into, and, and that's that word into, ice is into, baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. You've been unified and identified with Him. Then stay loyal to Him is the implication, right? Identify with Him. Follow Him and put men down on a lower shelf where they need to be. He says, as a diversion somewhat, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Paul was so careful in ministry. There were two things in this. <clears throat> Paul did not assert himself he wanted to include other brethren. And when he saw opportunity to bring others into ministry, he did so. And if there were others that could be doing that work, he brought them into it. He could have done it all. He could have said, I'm the pastor here, and I'm doing everything. I'm going to do all the weddings. I'm going to do all the funerals. I'm doing all the baptisms. I'm leading all the prayers. I may do the song leading. I'm doing the preaching. And I may even serve at the pot, luck, pot blessed supper. And, and we kind of smile at that, but there are churches like that, you know. There are churches like that. Paul was quick to get others involved. That's what we need to be about, too. 
Our Lord was like that. And Paul says, I didn't baptize anyone because I don't want anyone to even falsely accuse me of it, of exalting myself. I love that. And then he reminds himself, yes, uh, I also baptized. You know, I don't want you to accuse me of lying to you. Oh, yeah, I happen to think I also baptized the household of Stephanus. But besides that, I do not know. I don't recall whether I baptized any other. Not like that. He said, because Christ did not send me to baptize. He knew his mission. He knew his calling. And that's part of what he's urging the Corinthians and us to know too. Each one of us has an individual calling. Not only a calling to salvation, but a calling to service. And God wants us to know what it is so we can invest ourselves in it and get involved in it, right? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And this leads into what he's going to talk about in verses 18, really to the end of the chapter. So he's saying that Christ is preeminent above any other individual in these verses 10 to 17. In verses 18 to 25 now, as we move into the message of the cross... And this is so important for us to get, beloved. Really, we need to concentrate on this and think about this because we are being bombarded today with all kinds of methods on how we give the gospel, right? And we're told, well, we've got to be culturally relevant. And we do have to be culturally relevant. I agree with that part, but we don't distort the message. We don't distort the message. We don't say, move into this needs theology that says that, that well, it's not the message of the cross because that's offensive to people. So we want to preach on that Christ will meet all your needs. You just need to trust in Him more and He'll meet all your needs, see? Or the gospel of self-esteem that's replaced the message. Because Paul tells us in Galatians 5, there's an offense to the message of the cross. Do you know that? You, if you've shared it, you know that personally. You've seen it on their face. The message of the cross, when it's preached, it's offensive to the lost person in Adam. And so while we want to be culturally relevant, and there are different, there's a diversity in how we can present it, we don't want to dilute the message. That's what Paul's saying here. He says he preaches the gospel not with wisdom of words there in verse 17. Notice what he says in verse in chapter 2, verse 2. Now, we'll get, Lord willing, plan to get to chapter 2 on Tuesday night at the Andersons. I'm looking forward to that. But I just want to pull out a couple of verses. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. I wasn't trying to trick you with some sort of philosophical approach to trick you into believing in someone who really was misrepresenting who the Lord Jesus really is. 
Over in Second Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul comes back to that same idea. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 2, he says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So we want to be careful to maintain that balance as we present the gospel and as we live it and as we share it with others. So coming back then to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 18, for the message of the cross, the message of the cross, or the word of the cross, you could translate it. It's the same word, logos, logia. The message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing. Does that sound strong? Moriah is the word. Moron we get from it. And they think we're morons. Those who are lost. Those who are perishing. And, and you see here in this verse. There's only two responses. There's only two responses to the message of the cross. There, there are those who are perishing. And there are those who are being saved. Which one are you in tonight? Are you in the group of those being saved? Well, I can, I can answer by asking you. I'll answer for you. What think ye of the blood of Christ? What think ye of the cross? Because for those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. And not just an intellectual knowledge of the power of God, an experience of the power of God. He say, what do you mean? Miracles? Yeah, I mean the great miracle. Conversion. And the transformation that flows out after conversion, being conformed into the image of Christ, right? That's the power of God. It's His resurrection power at work in us. Those of us who are being saved, the power of God is at work in us. That is awesome, isn't it? That is real. That is concrete. The millennials want something real and concrete. Let's give it to them. I thank the Lord for that. I was reading an article by our brother. He was saying that, you know, he said, well, you know, we, we like, we, boomers like to use alliteration in our outlines, right? Beginning each of the sections with the same letter. I'm doing that already here. I apologize for it. And, and he was telling his, his kids, and his kids were, I guess they'd be grandkids probably if he was a boomer, but millennials. They said, Dad, we could care less about that. <laughs> yeah, we could care less about your alliteration. Doesn't mean anything to us. The, the value and concrete strength in the message, that's what we're looking for. I can understand why kids growing up in the information age would want that. They're getting bombarded with information all over the place, coming from every direction. They're inventing something new almost every week as a means of dispersing more information. Like more information means more hope. And of course, that's not true. It just gets you occupied, sidetracked, involved in things, rabbit trails. And gets you off the power of God in Christ. To those who are perishing. And it's interesting, you notice how he puts it? 
they're, they're perishing already. They will perish in a coming day, but they're already perishing. The lost are perishing every day. Did you know that? John 3.36 says, The wrath of God is hovering over them like a sheet getting ready to fall. And they don't even know it. I didn't know it. You didn't know it before you were saved. They were blinded. Blinded by intellectualism, blinded by philosophy, blinded by false religion, all the different tools that the world system under Satan uses. And they say, well, that message of the cross, well, that's, that's just utter foolishness. A man dying on a cross is going to save you. That's foolish, is what they say. And that may be what you thought. Or what I thought before we were saved. Something happened though, didn't it? Illumination came in. We began to see that this was the power and the wisdom of God. Oh, Lord, you're going to take death and bring life out of death? You're going to take an awful event and all its destructiveness in one sense, right? The judgment he bore and then bring something good and living out of it? Yeah, that, that's what I'm going to do, the Lord. That's my wisdom, see. I love that kind of wisdom. Because it puts the pride and self-exaltation of man right on its ear. I don't know about some of you, but in high school, I went to a Jesuit college prep school there in Houston. And we had philosophy courses. And, of course, their whole idea is intellectualism. And, and we studied about the Renaissance. And I remember this. I was lost. Very religious, but lost. And I remember looking and I said, you know what? I want to be a Renaissance man. You remember that? You know, Kenneth Clark was doing his series on civilization. And, you know, and Thomas Jefferson, and, uh, who, who had a love for privacy. Kenneth Clark. He had a love for privacy. And, and intellectualism and the arts and, and the Renaissance man. I like that. Renaissance means new birth, by the way. But it's not the new birth of the Bible. It's a new birth into humanism. An exaltation of all the glories of man apart from God and apart from Christ and apart from the cross, right? And I thought, wow, you know, a Renaissance man was a balanced man. That is, he was great in philosophy. He was great in religion. He loved the arts. He was great in history and civilization. And he could probably do engineering and science like Thomas Jefferson and these different ones. I mean, he was just politically multifaceted, right? but lost. So we want to be careful to realize this section is not saying that all of man's great achievements in science and technology and philosophy are useless. But in the sense of salvation, they are foolishness because they will not lead you to Christ. Do you believe me? This is what the word is saying here. He goes on. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom 
of the wise, God says, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This is a fascinating quote, and I'd love to go into it in its context in Isaiah 29. The context is Israel was trying to save themselves by the Assyrian invasion. The great Neo-Assyrian Empire was coming down from the north under Sennacherib, and, and the northern kingdom had already fallen, and, and they were the cities of Judah were being... And he, they're going to you know, surround Jerusalem, of course, Hezekiah's day. And they said, you know what? We're going to, we're going to try to get help from Egypt. And he says... I'm going to destroy the wisdom of those wise men. I'm going to show them, God says, that going to Egypt, going to anyone... Why didn't they come to me? God says. I'm their God. I'm their Father. Why don't they come to me? Think of how many times in our time of need we go to men or others instead of the Lord. And that's foolishness. Because we're forgetting who we are in Christ, right? Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? How did He make it foolish? The message of the cross. That's the context, right? He made it foolish by using His Son dying on a cross to bring salvation. That's the wisdom of God and the power of God. For since in the, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, through its own wisdom, human philosophy, humanism, did not know God. Look at all the world religions going all the way back. None of them ever came to know God, did they? Search it out if you don't believe me. I searched it out for a while in college days. I tried looking at the course in anthropology and philosophy, and, and, and I never found God that way. You know what you know what God's going to use? Brother brought it out this morning beautifully. It's going to take a broken and contrite heart. It's going to take us humbling ourselves before holy God. That's the wisdom of God, you see. All those other things exalt self. God knows where our weaknesses are. For Jews request a sign in Greeks seek after wisdom. Two great historical categories of civilization. The Jews sought for a sign, miracle, power. Show us your power. Show us a miracle. The Greeks said, impress us with wisdom. Remember Paul on Mars Hill in Athens? We'll hear from you again another day. What does this babbler have to say? We'll hear from you again another day. It sounds interesting. Tomb of the unknown God, right? But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks just plain foolishness. Why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? They said, well, our Messiah is not going to die on a cross. That's for sure. Our Messiah is going to come riding on a white horse. You all missed it somehow, you Gentiles. And they're still waiting for that. And He will come for them. When he's so gracious but not until after they've humbled themselves in brokenness and contrition and admitted and looked on the one they pierced, Zechariah 12. And then they will recite Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, I believe, is the Jews looking back and they're going to, in Zechariah 12, they're going to look on him and they're going to mourn for him. And that mourning is Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
He. And now, now we get it. You and I can enter into that now. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is He your power and your wisdom tonight? Is He all sufficient for you? Are you satisfied with, are you content with Christ? Does He meet all your needs? Does He have the power and the wisdom to answer all your questions and to lead you into the everlasting way? I hope so. I hope you've come to that place. That's what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be convinced in our own heart, I, I don't need to look for anyone else. Remember what the disciples of John the Baptist, look we for another? John came and sent them away and he says, Are you the Messiah or look we for another? Do we need to find someone else or are you really Him? He, he called Him the Lamb of God at His baptism, but now He's having doubts and questions. He's, or look we for another. Are you looking for another tonight? If you're not satisfied with Christ, you're looking for another, whether you realize it or not. And me too. Christ alone, the wisdom and power of God. He's sufficient. And if He's sufficient, you're not looking for some man to follow. <laughs> Apart from the Apostle Paul, because he says to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So that one I'll go along with. Because the foolishness of God. What is the foolishness of God? It's the cross. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ dying on a cross looks to the world. In the world's estimation, it's weakness. It's foolishness, right? But in God's estimation, it's power and wisdom. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What kind of people are called then? Broken people. Broken people. So when you and I share the gospel, they may think they're high and mighty. They may think they're noble. They may think they're wonderful. But the message of the cross is going to be they need to be broken before holy God. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now we see why He did it. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are... I'm sorry, the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? that no flesh should glory in His presence. You get that? No man, no woman, no person should boast, glory, brag, exalt themselves in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Remember how he started? Chapter, beginning of chapter 1? He's the initiator. He's the source of salvation. God is. It was his idea, right? In eternity past. It was his idea to save. 
but of him out from uh, out from god ek out from him you are in christ jesus who became for us wisdom from god and righteousness and sanctification and redemption the whole picture of the christian life wisdom of god demonstrated in righteousness that's justification right being declared right before god having a sure standing before a holy god and confidence to approach the throne of grace based on righteousness not which we earn he gave it to us that's what justification means right and then sanctification increasingly being set apart practically speaking in daily life for god we call it holiness too their words are interchangeable but the idea is being set apart for god and knowing it and being happy with it being content with it not despising it and then thirdly redemption glorification our soul and our spirit have already been redeemed but the bodies haven't right us brethren that are getting older we we're feeling them creaks and pain and these bodies hadn't but we've got a redeemed body paul says in romans 8 he, he says the old creation groans for the new creation. He said, and we who are saved, we groan for that body. We groan for it. We can't wait. It's an eternal body. These aren't. This is temporary. This is training ground for that. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He who boasts, he who treasures, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. All right, application. That's what it says. How do we make this work? Can I give you three things real quickly? Because I've run over a little bit. Very quickly. First, daily reading in the Word of God. Daily reading in the Word of God with increasing love for Jesus Christ. Okay? So when our in our daily reading for the Lord in the in the Word of God, be looking for the treasure that is Christ. If you're journaling, and I hope you are, it's a great help to do it in our sanctification, to mark down what what it makes you feel about your love for the Lord, because then you come back the next time and it strengthens you even more, see. Our love for Christ increasingly as we do our daily reading. Secondly, Submitting, submitting to and rejoicing in His resurrection power at work in us. Alright? If we're glorying in the Lord, we want to be increasingly submitting to and rejoicing in His resurrection power, which is at work in us. The Holy Spirit working in us. Conforming us to the image of Christ. We're going to surrender to that. We're going to submit to that. If we really believe what Paul's saying here, the message of the cross. And then thirdly, not diluting the gospel as we share it to the lost. Being careful not to do it. We know the message of the cross is an offense to them. We know that. Now, we don't want to go out of our way to be unnecessarily offensive, right? We, we could do that, and that would be wrong. That's not what Paul's saying. But we recognize it's an offense to them. And, and so we know we need to be in prayer and we need to be sensitive and careful how we word it, right? With each individual, the, the approach varies. But the world's techniques, the world's 
cultural influences, using them instead of the message of the cross, that we would avoid. And I think that's going to be something we're going to need to be alert to increasingly as we move towards the rapture, brethren, especially in the information age, right? Let me just close with with these thoughts from Irish sister, dear Mary Byrne, Be Thou My Vision. It's number 431 if you wanted to see it. But Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of... Think of the words. Be Thou My Vision. Not Apollos, not Paul, not Cephas, not any other name you want to put in there. But the Lord Jesus, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son, Thou in me dwelling, and I with Thee. One. This is what the power and the wisdom of God at work in us will produce. And that will take a lot of the problems of contentions and divisions and difficulties away, won't it? Because... They're on, a, they're on a lower tier, way down here. Christ is up here. If we stay focused on Him, looking unto Jesus, not any, anybody. Nobody else died on that cross for you but Him, the author and finisher of our faith. Isn't it awesome to know Him? Isn't it awesome to know who we are in Him? That we have a purpose and a mission and He wants to help us fulfill it. He wants it in us more than we want it. May He help us to do so. So, Father, we thank You for Your encouragement, the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. What a Messiah. What an idea that You thought of this, Lord. The wisdom of God and the power of God to really affect it and do it. Because somehow something happens when we turn to the Lord in contrition and humility and confess Him as our Lord and Savior and that we're sinners and we need to be saved, something miraculous happens inside that we're born again. That's the power of God. And we thank You for it. And if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know the Lord Jesus as Savior, we want them to know Him too and come into this partnership with Your Son that we've all been called to. And we'll give you the thanks and the glory and the praise. So we pray in the Lord Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.